Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Diversity is actually an aspect of quality and that when we're talking about a quality teacher workforce, diversity is actually part of that understanding. A new report from the University of Melbourne has shown engaging people of diverse backgrounds could improve staff shortages and student performance within Australia. Australia's teaching industry. Also, and that service has uh, not only provided interventions, uh, more than a thousand interventions so far, but they've also put out multiple warnings to the community. Over 70 of the top health and community agencies are calling on the Victorian government to address what they're calling a dire need for illicit drug testing. And later today, they showed a link between chronic stress leading to fatigue and also depression, and if both factors were present, there was an even stronger link with cognitive impairment and dementia. A recent study out of Sweden shows a link between depression and chronic stress and a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, last Wednesday, refugee women desperate for visas walked 650 kilometres from the Office of Immigration Minister Andrew Giles in Melbourne to Parliament House in Canberra. Thousands gathered on the lawn in front of Parliament House, welcoming the women after their long walk, showing solidarity and collective resistance against current refugee policies. The group of mainly Iranian and Tamil refugees are demanding permanent protection and visa certainty for all refugees and asylum seekers and the abolition of the misnamed fast-track system. The Wire's Ariana Mahmood attended the rally at Parliament House in Canberra. Hi, I'm Sophie Singh and I'm with the Refugee Action Campaign in Canberra. The way Australia has treated refugees over 20 years is just appalling. People have been here for 10 years or more, separated from family, from, from children. Um, we're still, still without any prospect of a permanent visa. People are desperate and it's, it's diminishing our whole society. So that's why I feel I can't just sit by. I have to stand up and, and say, enough is enough. It's time for permanence. And what does it mean to you to be beside with these groups of people? What does it mean to you to seek justice for them and to give a voice to these women? I think it means everything. To me, it's about what type of society we want Australia to be. And so that's where, where I'm coming from. It's about these women and, their, these, and these people and their human rights, but it's also about the type of Australia. And so that's what I want to see, an Australia that values um, compassion, that values fairness and that, that values justice. And now, uh, what are these women calling for from the government? So these women and those that they have walked for are calling for permanent visas. Um, they have been failed by a system that is unfair, that is fundamentally flawed, that the Labor Party acknowledges is flawed and um, uh, these people are still without permanence. They are building their lives in Australia but they still can't call Australia home. So they are calling first and foremost for permanent visas. So this is a, a, um, a campaign really that I think every Australian should be concerned about. That if people knew just how much damage these policies are having, I think ordinary Australians would be appalled. That was Sophie Singh from the Refugee Action Campaigning. 
I also spoke with Ranuga Impakumar, the spokesperson of the Tamil Refugee Council, about the impacts of the policies on the Tamil and broader refugee community. So definitely being an Australian citizen, it's really um, shameful what the Australian government's doing. And I think we need to stand with all the refugees who have fled from terror, genocide and war. Um, And definitely that these uh, women, but not just women, these men that are standing alongside these women also need to have a voice. They're not being heard. And we as citizens... Um, are being the voice for these refugees, for the Australian government to hear them. And do you have any personal experiences about the discrimination that these diverse communities are facing? Definitely. Um, so being a Tamil, um, we definitely have faced genocide. So both my parents had to flee their homeland um, at the age of 13 and 19, not go back. So we carry that um, pain of not going back and seeing our home and seeing our family. Due to the activism that I do, I can't go back to our homeland. Um, and when I was 10, I actually attended a detention centre to visit the 53 ACO reject refugees. Um, and that was when I felt the face of what they were going through. Um, and it's definitely hard seeing the single men who can't marry, who can't um, see their mothers and the children who can't do education. So I definitely feel in um, some sort of sense for these refugees guilty that I get to live this life, but they And how do you feel about this energy that we're seeing today? It's definitely um, anger that's spewing around the crowd because of the ongoing trauma that they face from 10 years. Um, I'm not surprised of the anger that they have with the government as well as um, the tears that they face. Um, There's definitely a sense of collective justice, which is seen with everyone continuously chanting, as you can see. Um, So I think it's, it's something that people are ready to keep going and fighting, but they definitely want to end this fight once and for all. Uh, Mohammed Kulfam from Pakistan, Pakistan Pirate I've got my own company here, a small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, been here for like almost 12 years and still struggling to get a visa here. Um, Interviewed immigration for almost, I think in 2017 and then they refused my case 2019. And then I applied for IAA, they refused my case and then got to the judicial review. After judicial review, um, it took about, I don't know, more than nearly two years. I waited for that and I refused it again. So uh, there's no hope still till 12 years now. Um, and how is it impacting your daily life um, um, and your family and community? Every single person here in Australia, most of the refugees here are diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and it seems me. I, um, I got hospitalised in 2019 when I, my case was refused and I was in hospital for a week. And I was heavy, I was on medication for nearly two years. Yeah, finally I got off, but now I'm stressing again. Uh, I hope I don't get back to the same thing again. But I'm trying, every single person here trying really, really hard to get out from their depression. And how do you feel being here amongst the people today with the women, with families, with men who are facing a similar struggle? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that everyone's here, that they're raising their voice here. If you don't do that, I mean, no one's going to hear our voice. I'm struggling, as I said, I struggle a lot. I hope today it brings any sort of changes that we can see our families and bring them here and see them together again. That was Mohammed Gulfam, a Pakistani refugee who drove from Melbourne to Canberra to attend the rally, ending the report by The Wire's Ariana Mahmood. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. coalition of Victorian health authorities say the Victorian government must implement drug testing services to address the growing number of related casualties. 
77 agencies have joined forces with the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association and RMIT in urging the government to follow recommendations made by the state coroner for testing facilities across the state. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso spoke with Senior Research Fellow at RMIT University, Dr Monica Barrett, about the importance of drug checking policy. At this point, we've launched this statement because we want to demonstrate that there's strong community and support from health and community organisations for drug checking. And drug checking can be located at events or as a standalone service and it allows people to find out what's in their drugs whilst they receive a health intervention, which helps them to make more informed decisions about their drug use and ultimately can reduce overdoses, both non-fatal and fatal. Sounds to me it would follow the line similar to that enacted in the ACT. Absolutely. So the ACT has had a drug checking service since the middle of last year and that service has had a positive evaluation and will be continuing. And that service has not only provided interventions, uh, more than a 1,000 interventions so far, but they've also put out multiple warnings to the community based on the information that they've uncovered. For example, odd, completely strange, and in some cases unprecedented different types of drugs that they've discovered in substances that people have submitted. And, and these are all unexpected substances uh, and those people finding out about those substances are highly unlikely to take that substance. So here we're, we're looking at preventing the use of an unusual and unknown substance. Dr Barrett, opponents of drug reform have likened uh, drug testing regimes as a Trojan horse for the introduction of uh, drug decriminalisation. Do you see it that way? Look, I think that one of the problems with drug policy in the world, essentially, is where people are using or in possession of small amounts of substances and because of criminalisation, they feel scared to get help. They feel that, you know, naturally they might get caught, they might end up, you know, losing jobs, for example. And so this sort of thing can actually stop people from getting the help they need. For example, if someone is overdosing and their friends choose not to get emergency treatment immediately, that can cause problems down the line, potentially fatalities. So I definitely think that decriminalisation is an important discussion to have. Drug checking isn't decriminalisation, but it certainly works better when people who go along to a service know that they're not going to be caught. So the research that I did a few years ago, which was survey research of uh, people in the nightlife and festival setting, we asked people whether they would use a drug checking service and whether they would like to. Some of the attitudinal questions which were really interesting out of that study well, I think it was, was almost all, something like 95%, said that they would only use a drug checking service if they had a guarantee that they wouldn't be arrested, and this makes perfect sense. But Victoria is not alone on the question of drug testing. New South Wales has been grappling with the issue uh, for holding drug testing uh, facilities at party venues, dances, festivals and the like. Does that suggest that the sentiment for change is becoming widespread? I think it does, and it relates to the increased number of novel substances that are being detected through other means, be that in drug seizures that police are making or also in some of the monitoring systems we have. 
at the moment in New South Wales and Victoria, we don't have drug checking, but one of the things we do have is we have a system where when people turn up to hospitals and they've had an overdose, their bloods get tested and, and people will talk to them about what they think they've had. And if those two things are discrepant, then um, New South Wales and Victoria have some systems in place where they can put out an alert. Now, that's obviously useful, but it's after the fact. It, it only happens if enough people overdose, and then, of course, it takes weeks for that alert to come out. Victoria Ambulance is a co-signatory to the statement. Does that suggest that even statutory authorities are now becoming concerned about the level of overdoses within the Australian community? I agree. I believe that the range of organisations that have signed our statement, um, including 77 Victorian-based and some national organisations demonstrates the level of support. We've got the pharmacists represented, we've got doctors represented, ambulance, healthcare workers, workers in the service industry uh, through the Australian Services Union, for example. So I think I'm hoping that when people have a good look at the, the range and the depth of support, that that will make a difference too. That was Dr Monica Barrett from RMIT University ending the report by National Radio News' Frank Bonacorso. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners on Noosa Community Radio 101.3 FM. And to the other side of the country on Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A new report from the University of Melbourne has shown engaging people of diverse backgrounds within Australia's teaching industry could improve staff shortages and student performance. The report outlines several strategies to address current issues in the education sector by recruiting teachers across four underrepresented minority groups. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with lead author and associate professor Suzanne Rice from the University of Melbourne. Look, there are a number of good reasons to do this. One is that there is considerable evidence now that this can help, for example, boost the achievement of students in minority groups. They see people from their group acting as a role model. We know from research in the United States, for example, that black students will tend to do better with black teachers and indeed other students in the school will tend to do better. Often those teachers have higher expectations of minority group students. They enable those students to negotiate and navigate cultures and and systems that might feel unfamiliar to them. And also they often act as a cultural bridge to other members in the community. And they provide a sort of an educative force, if you like, across the staff to help them understand minority group cultures, practices, barriers, and so on. So that's from the point of view of the students. From the point of view of education systems, one of the things we know now is that teachers have a tendency to head towards and stay within schools that are like those they attended themselves at places that they grew up. So that Australia, while we're in the middle of a school staffing crisis at the moment, we have very long-standing issues with staffing our rural and remote schools and our regional schools and also to some degree with staffing 
schools in lower socioeconomic areas. And increasing the diversity of the teaching workforce might help us some way to addressing those particular problems. Students who grew up in rural and regional areas are more likely to accept and remain in a school that is in a rural and regional setting rather than students who grew up in an urban setting. So Essentially, it helps address some of those long-standing staffing issues and we also break the cycle quality in terms of the outcomes of students in different settings contribute to that. And of course, it's just a sensible thing to do for social justice reasons. Our school workforce could be representative. What are some other strategies are explored in the report that could help with the issues? We did a scan of what sort of policy initiatives are out there to increase teacher workforce diversity. The sorts of things we found, some of which do exist in some states in Australia, things like Grow Your Own Initiatives is where, for example, you target people who are administrative staff or teacher aides in schools in rural and remote areas or in less privileged areas and you provide support through an internship type model for them to undertake a teaching course and become a teacher and go back to that school. And the thinking behind this is that these people are connected to the local community, they usually live locally, they have an interest in education and understand something of how schools work because they are working in a school and that's probably the strategy for which there is the strongest evidence of effectiveness in terms of teaching increasing teacher diversity and programs do range on a spectrum. They've been programs like this have actually existed in the States for a while now. And at one end it's just offering a pathway for people who are already working in schools but not teachers. But at the other end it works very much more on a co construction model and where candidates from diverse areas and diverse backgrounds are actually informing the teacher education program that they undertake so that their local knowledge and knowledge of the issues of students is seen as something valuable and one of the things that we've thought to emphasise in the report is that we argue that diversity is actually an aspect of quality and that when we're talking about a quality teacher workforce, diversity is actually part of that understanding. So Grow Your Own was one possibility. Internship programs is another. We do have some of those in Australia, so that's where people work at the same time as they're gaining a teaching qualification. So they're working in schools part-time and they're working their way through the course. And again, that can be useful in increasing diversity. There is some evidence there. Going forward from this report, what's going to happen next? Is it going to be passed to policymakers? What do you hope going forward? We've got two things happening. One is we've got a distribution strategy where we're passing it on to policymakers and we've sought to publish through things like the conversation. But as well as that, in late November, we're going to be holding a policymaker forum, which will be a dual face-to-face online forum and we're going to bring together policymakers and also researchers we know working in this area who are interested in increasing the diversity of the teacher workforce, say, OK, well, what needs to be done next and how can researchers help policymakers, policymakers help researchers to move this agenda forward? And that's the next key step we've got on this agenda. That was Associate Professor Suzanne Rice speaking with The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. A recent study out of Sweden has established a link between depression and chronic stress and a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia. Dementia experts have reminded the public of the study's limitations while welcoming the continued dialogue and destigmatisation around brain health. The Wire's Isaac Brogan spoke with Associate Professor Michael Woodward, head of the Dementia Research Unit at Austin Hospital and Honorary Medical Advisor for Dementia Australia. So mild cognitive impairment and dementia refer to a clinical stage, a severity stage. 
People with mild cognitive impairment have significant problems with memory and thinking. They might also have some very minor changes in mood and behavior, but they're essentially independent. They could live for a week on their own without too much difficulty. Somebody with dementia, which is the next stage of progression, has lost some function and needs help in initially uh, more complex activities and then simpler activities. So they're clinical severity stages. Underneath that, there can be a cause such as Alzheimer's disease, vascular cognitive impairment and dementia, too much alcohol, too many head injuries, which we're seeing in sports, could be due to Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease. There's about 200 causes of mild cognitive impairment leading on to dementia. But mild MCI, mild cognitive impairment and dementia, refer to the clinical stage. Recent research suggests that there may be a link between chronic stress and depression and Alzheimer's. Can you tell us what is known about this potential link? So this was a study based in Sweden. It was a very large database, but it's a bit unique to Sweden to have this diagnosis of chronic uh, stress disorder. It's not something that is a, a diagnosis that's used like that in many other countries. So we have to be aware that there's certain restrictions of this study. I would regard the study as what we call hypothesis generating. It, it raises questions, but it doesn't necessarily answer them. Nevertheless, they showed a link between chronic stress leading to fatigue and also depression. And if both factors were present, there was an even stronger link with cognitive impairment and dementia. But only a very small number of people reach the dementia stage. So again, the study has limitations. We do know, however, that both chronic stress and depression are associated with inflammation. And there is a link between inflammation and uh, Alzheimer's disease and perhaps other forms of cognitive impairment. So it makes sense that stress and depression could be a risk factor for dementia. And in fact, another study, much more rigorous, has said that there is a link between depression and dementia, but they haven't found a link between stress and dementia. So the take-home message is it would be important as much as possible to avoid becoming too stressed, to avoid being depressed if one can, and if one is, have that diagnosed and treated. Although there's no evidence yet that treatment of these conditions actually stops the risk. Can you tell us why early diagnosis is so important for dementia and the steps that someone can take if they're concerned about their own memory or that of a loved one? I think it's important to be diagnosed at the mild cognitive impairment stage, not at the dementia stage, which is usually five or 10 years later. So when a person has significant memory problems or somebody notices that their loved one is having memory problems, I'm not talking about occasionally forgetting the name of an actress or where you left your keys or uh, the name of a movie you've watched, but I'm talking about repeated memory problems, such as repeating yourself, sometimes only minutes apart and several times, or repeatedly losing things or putting them in unusual places forgetting to turn things on or off, forgetting your names of your grandchildren, getting lost over a familiar route to you know, the shopping centre or to your daughter's house, forgetting uh, what happened a, a week or two ago, even though it was a big important event, or forgetting to honour anniversaries and birthdays when one would normally have been quite meticulous about this. Those sorts of changes raise alarm bells. They might still be benign. They could be due to stress or depression. So it's important to go and see your GP in the initial, initial stages and then go on to get a, an accurate diagnosis, which often requires going to a memory clinic or a specialist. And the importance of early diagnosis is that it gives you an opportunity to know what might be installed, to plan, but also to pay even greater attention to brain health. We should all be aware of brain health from midlife onwards, but we're even more focused if we've got a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. And by brain health, I mean things such as a Mediterranean diet, regular exercise, uh, keeping your brain active, uh, keeping socially engaged, 
reducing too much alcohol, reducing cigarettes or stopping cigarettes, making sure that your blood pressure and cholesterol are controlled. There's a lot of things we can do to maintain brain health. And we'd be more focused on those if we have an accurate diagnosis. I think if anybody's concerned about their memory or their risk of developing mild cognitive impairment or even having it, and their risk of developing dementia, they should certainly go and see their, their doctor uh, and make sure the doctor doesn't say, well, you know, what do you expect at your age? Or my memory's worse than yours. This is a, a warning sign. Doctors don't ignore high blood pressure. They don't ignore cholesterol. They shouldn't ignore signs of memory loss. And you as the patient, if you're listening to this, shouldn't be uh, stigmatized. You shouldn't feel, oh, look, you know, I'm going to be labeled as having dementia. I might lose my driving license. My insurance will be all mucked up. These things can be dealt with but it's very important to get an accurate diagnosis. And the other thing is, uh, if you feel like you need more help and support, Dementia Australia are very, very helpful for anybody with concerns about their memory. So contact them either directly through their national helpline or through their website. That was The Wire's Isaac Brogan, speaking with Associate Professor Michael Woodward on depression, stress and Alzheimer's. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries where this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.